0: Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, as you guessed it, back to Proverbs chapter 25, <clears throat> last week we started chapter 25, and you know, every week, just so you know, every week this kind of goes together. Uh, I, I have broken the chapters up so that we can look at them in pieces so we can digest it all, but honestly, all this kind of moves Together. So, if when I start this week or next week, I'll stop for a minute and, and join them back together for you. So, even though I'm giving you sections on a week, you can follow a consistent flow through it. But last week, we started chapter 25, and we, we saw some really good material for ourselves, you know, from the doctrinal and the historical and the inspirational. All three of those applications are very valuable when it comes to the Bible and the Word of God. And we try to, you know, try to give you an understanding or at least an appreciation of it that you can get it. But then I'll try to bring it around to put it into some kind of practical application for you. And we saw last week, you know, the importance of Solomon's uh, uh, Proverbs. Bible says that uh, he wrote many more, 3,000 plus, but we didn't get all of that. But we got what he wants us to have And uh, they're invaluable. And what I showed you last week is how that even 300 years after he's dead, when the kings of Israel, in this case last week was Hezekiah, the kings of Israel are trying to uh, get back to God. They knew the value of the wisest man that ever lived. You know, every president, every king, any man who runs a country or a queen, for that matter, they're always going to have a cabinet around them of people that they call advisors. Every given situation, you know, they will sit down with these guys and they'll, they'll find out what their options are, take a, you know, scenario of what we should do from each one of them and then try to come out with some kind of optional plan to, to make it all work. And you know what? That's what Hezekiah is doing, He's having his guys go back to the book of Proverbs. He knew the value of the wisest man that ever lived. The tragedy is today that in most of the cabinets that we have, people with the presidents and the kings, it's all worldly wisdom. The the men and even the women who once stood for the word of God, uh, you know, are no longer around. But we saw how important that it is and it was. And then we saw how that God sometimes will control Conceal truth until he's ready to reveal it. We saw in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, a couple of weeks, and this is fast becoming my favorite verse, how that God hid the truth of the Word of God from the educated crowd who rejected his Word. And that's why you find so many guys that are in the pulpit or seminaries are absolutely worthless. Seminaries are held up to you, Bible colleges to you as the epitome of where you go to learn about the Bible. Let me tell you something. I never met a preacher in my life that went through a seminary that didn't laugh about it after he got out that that's not really learned the Bible or the ministry. But that's the way it's presented to you today. And if God says he hides himself from those kind of guys. We already know that he hid himself from the nation of Israel. There's things that he held back from them. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, you know, we find that how God has not given them everything. And, uh, you know, uh, and then he, he puts them things and conceals it from you and from me. Because he does that because our job is to search the scriptures. We're to show ourselves a student, you know, approved of God, looking into the scriptures and going after those things. The gold mine, like we talked about last week. And then we talked about the vessels of honor and dishonor, and how that I gave you five or four things that uh, are connected with that. The dross, which are the impurities. The silver, we talked about how that, that where gold is a reference to Christ's deity, silver is a reference to the redemption, Christ being sold for 30 pieces of silver. So we saw how that, uh, as I told you last week, every day of your life as you perfect yourself in God's wisdom should make you more aware of the price that was paid for you on Calvary's cross. That's really, hands down, the greatest obstacle why God's people don't do what they should do for the Lord. They have never found out or they have forgotten or they never just took the time to find out the real price that was paid. Because if we would, we would never look twice at this world again. But that's just the way it is. And then we talked about vessels, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. We talked about the finer, like a refinery. A finer is someone who takes the silver or the gold and through fire purges it, and the dross, the impurities come to the top, and then it can be scraped off and can be used from there and go from there. We saw how that really uh, all comes together. The refining process of God in your life taking you and molding and making you into everything that God wants you to be. And I've showed you that all of this doctrinally, all of this prophetically is dealing with the nation of Israel. But then we know that we just kind of move over into the inspirational, and we know it's also a picture of what God does with us. And today I, I want to I use uh, these next set of verses along with what I gave you last week, and basically what we've come through the book of Proverbs, and I want to help you maybe get your Bible in a little bit of understandable order of how things go here. Now, let me just say to you today, we're going to be a little mixture here a day of everything. Going to be a little doctrinal stuff, a little historical stuff, and a little bit of preaching stuff. You know, uh, we're going to kind of blend it all together today, and uh, uh, you can't get into good doctrine without getting into some good preaching. And, uh, and I'm just going to tell you, Now today, like I said, I want to move on here and I want to show you how that you're going to lay out your Bible to some important things concerning what's coming up in the future here. So let's read Proverbs chapter 25, verses 5 through 7. It says, "...take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king." And stand not in the place of great men; for better is it to be said unto thee, "Come up hither," than thou shouldst be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. Justin, Boo, Father over here, would you stand up and and, uh, and ask the blessing on the sermon this morning? Amen. Now, what, one of the things that I want to do and I always try to do, whether I'm preaching on Sunday morning or we're having a dedicated Bible study like on Thursday night or with my, even with my Lincoln people up there, you know, that we do Bible studies too. I'm always looking for opportunities to help you understand the Bible better. Uh, most preachers just want to preach at you. I don't want to preach at you. I want to preach to you. I want to give you something, no matter what I'm saying, no matter what area of the scope of the Bible I'm laying out, that you walk away with something. I want every time we meet to be profitable for you. I don't want to tell you what I want to say. I want to tell you what God wants me to give you and help you glean from that and show you things. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to take these three verses and we're going to dissect them a little bit. We're going to take them apart, then we're going to put them back together. And I want to show you componently how each one of them work so you can better get an overall appreciation how, how you look for things in your Bible and how the Bible lays itself out. Let's look in verse 5 for a moment. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Now, you look at that verse, and you probably read verses like that, and, you, and that's all the farther you go with it. Now, let me show you how when through the biblical eye here, so to speak, you look at this and you get the pieces that make it into a context for you. And as I've told you many, many times, if you want to learn your Bible and get the context of the Bible, you'll want to get the key words in the Bible. Thursday night, somebody asked a question about Revelation, about overcoming over there in Revelation 2 or 3, wherever it was. And I showed you how that you you understood that by getting the key words that define that for you. And everything in the Bible is that way, everything. Now, you take verse 5 here. It says, Take away the wicked from the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Now, when you find that phrase, his throne being established, and you're going to find that a lot in the book of Psalms. You're going to find it through the Old Old Testament prophets and places. Anytime you find that phrase, the context, without a doubt, is going to be the second coming of Christ moving into the millennium. Because it's in the second coming of Christ where he comes down to this earth, he gets on that throne, and that throne is established, and then it goes from there. In your Bible, and you should know this, most of you know this, in your Bible, this will be called the day of the Lord. It'll be called that day. It'll be called the day sometimes. And uh, you want to always remember that this day, the day of the Lord, it lasts for a thousand years. It starts with the second coming of Christ and then runs through the millennial reign of Christ. The word millennium is our word for mill. Mill means 1,000. And it runs for 1,000 years uh, up until uh, Revelation chapter 21 in your Bible, but the whole chapter of Revelation chapter 20. And you're going to find where the Bible says the wicked is being taken away. That's a picture of the second coming of Christ, God taking away the wicked the Antichrist to be in particular, and all the folks that are hanging out with him, and then establishing his millennial throne. Now, you're going to find that many of the Old Testament prophets spoke about this, David in 2 Samuel chapter 23, uh, he talked about it. Uh, He said, uh, and he's speaking prophetically here. Uh, He said, now these be the, 23-1, now these be the last words of David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who, who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. And the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as tender grass springeth out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. Now, anytime you find those combination of words we're ready into the second coming of Christ here. It's like into a rainstorm, a cloudy day, and when tribulation, and when Christ breaks out and comes back, it's like the sun coming up in the morning after the destruction and the rain, the lightning and the thunder, and then, you know, after a good rainstorm, the sun comes out, you see a rainbow, two rainbow found two times in the Bible, once with Noah, once with the second coming, They're both types of the second coming, and then everything's cleaner. The air's cleaner, the grass is greener, your car's cleaner, Everything. Everything that got wet is now better off than it was. And it gives life back. That's a picture of the millennium. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me with an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and my desire, although he make it uh, not to grow. Now here it comes. But the sons of Beliah, Beli is an Old Testament name for the devil, if you don't have that in your Bible, wherever you find it. But the sons of Belia shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. Uh, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. 6 and 7 is a picture of God coming down to the second coming, taking away the wicked, the sons of Belial. You'll find it again in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he, he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. Now see how he defined all of those things for you? The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. You got it right there. Anytime you find those words anywhere in the Bible, especially the dragon and the serpent, you know what the context is. That's how the Bible works. And he bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that should, he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be should fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season you find it in the great chapter of Isaiah, chapter 14, which begins to talk out about Satan falling back in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. But then as the Bible does, it weaves its way right into the final destruction of Satan and, uh, and then shows you his end, which is ultimately going to happen. He says in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which just weakened the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregations in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, verse 12, 13, 14 shows you his aspirations of being like God. Now, watch what happened. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They shall see thee, shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth so tremble, and did shake the kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house, But thou art cast out to thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden underfoot. All this is a picture of Proverbs 25, 5, of the wicked being taken away. And the Bible says then that his throne is established in righteousness. This will be Psalms 19, verse 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire on his head, and many crowns he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him on white horses, that's me and you, by the way, clothed in fine linen, uh, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp uh, sword, with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fairness of the wrath of Almighty God, here it comes, and he hath on his vesture and on his shy a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. That's the establishment of his throne in righteousness. And Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, finally says, And the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, meaning God's Christ. The reason why he says that, because there's two Christs in the Bible, for those of you that want to get a little deeper into it. Now, just so you know, when it comes to the throne of God being established in righteousness, called the millennium, There are three basic teachings on this. And you're going to find this, many of you from our Bible Institute, which really teaches you everything you need to know about the Bible and the structure by which you learn the Bible. Many of you know what I'm about to say, but we've always got new people and people are trying to learn. And we've always got a host of 20, 30 young uh, Christians around here that are dumping into the book. So this will get you ahead here. There are three main teachings. The first one is called, now they're built around the millennium. And the millennium means 1,000. And the first teaching, which is false, is what we call all-millennialism. A-millennialism. A meaning no or not. In other words, no millennium. And this will be people like Unitarianism. They don't believe in any uh, coming of Christ. No literal kingdom, uh, no nothing. It's just the fact that you're here, you're your own God, you make the better place, or better live, whether you do or you don't, and that's all the farther it goes. Then you have another false teaching based around the millennium, and that's called postmillennialism. And the teaching here is that Christ will come back uh, only after uh, we make the world a better place to live, solve all the social problems, end all the wars. And this has been the mindset, just so you know. This mindset has been in operation for many, 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 many years, especially in America. After World War I, uh, the war, that was supposedly the war to end all wars. There's been 238 since then. They created back then what was called the League of Nations. A little later on become the United Nations. They put over the United Nations in the building there, if you went to Washington, D.C., they put a verse up there found in Isaiah that talks about building, beating your swords and the shears and uh, not knowing war anymore. That is a reference out of Isaiah that is dealing with the millennial reign of Christ. In other words, when the United Nations came into being by all the people on here, they thought that they were going to bring in the kingdom by ending war, by getting everybody together in the United Nations that would stop war, have peacekeepers, and bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What a joke that was. It never worked, it never will work, because at the end of the day, in your your post-millennial mindset, you can't fix anything. But this is why, this is why you'll find the churches that follow this kind of teaching, uh, they, they, they believe that, uh, uh, that we bring, uh, we're, we're making the world better by bringing everybody into God's kingdom. We bring the world to a golden age through our social gospel, through our social issues. We get away, and a way you do this is get away with sin, homosexuality is not wrong lesbianism not wrong now we even make them pastors because this is the social gospel it's a time when the whole world by these people in their minds will become christianized they'll get away with all war they'll get away with all sin they'll do away with everything and everybody will be kumbaya because right now their mindset is that we're all god's children you and I, in a post-millennial mindset, are on the outside looking in. We're the oddball crowd because they want to get everybody together. They're kingdom builders. They, they, we, they believe that everybody on planet Earth is God's children. Well, let me say something to you. Everybody on Earth may be God's creation, but not everybody on Earth is God's child. Amen. But that's the mindset they follow. So there's no lines in between denominations. And this is what you see in the evangelical crowd beginning to move in. Uh, There's no no doctrine anymore. There's no lines of divisions anymore. We really don't care what you believe as long as we can all hold hands and talk about loving Jesus. Well, there's more to it than that. Uh, Jesus said he didn't come to put families together or put the nations together, or the world together. He came to divide them. Amen. Amen. So we don't like that word divide today. Why, you don't go three verses in the Bible that God divided the light from the darkness. Amen. And then through the rest of your Bible, you know what he's doing? He's dividing. Amen. Now, the third one, which is the biblical approach, and is what we teach and what we believe, by the way, is what we call premillennialism. Premillennialism is the teaching that, that means Christ comes back before the millennium, and as Proverbs chapter 25, verse 5 says, and of the verses I've shown you, he wipes out the Antichrist, he wipes out the wicked, he takes them away, and then he establishes his kingdom, his throne in righteousness. And where the Roman Catholic Church pretty much takes a millennial view, uh, along with the Unitarian, that they believe that they are the kingdom through their church and there is no coming of Christ, that he's just going to, everything runs through their church, where the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Neo-Evangelicals and the Neo-Orthodoxy crowd, they all follow the the post-millennial mindset, the premillennialists. The premillennialist is someone who believes that God is going to come back and establish his kingdom in righteousness. There is going to be a time when all man has been looking for, that he's been trying to do himself, that he ends all wars, that he brings an end to all the hunger and all the suffering and all that. And that's what they try to do through making everybody okay. But that won't work. There'll be no peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes back. And before he can bring in the peace, he's got to get rid of the wicked. You don't like it because you're part of that wicked. I wouldn't like it either if I was you. Notice how I'm moving into my preaching mode. (laughs) If you read our statement of faith on the website, uh, you you will see that uh, we stay right down the line with a historical Bible-believing position of being premillennial. I'll tell you right now that the the whole mindset of the whole mindset of the Bible is built around a premillennial return of Christ. I could take the books in the Bible from Second Chronicles up to Book of Proverbs, and I could show you, without any question or doubt, the premillennial teaching found in the Bible by the order of the books in the Bible. You say I don't believe that I've been the Bible. That's because God has hid that from you. Thank God. You have to get your truth off the internet. Now, along with that, you'll want to know this. It's talking about his throne being established in righteousness. And this is very important. And I know a lot of you know this, so just bear with me. Hey, the price of learning is repetition. What am I apologizing for? I don't care if you like it or not. (laughs) The theme of the Bible is not Salvation. Now, the evangelical churches, they, they, that's what they hang their hat on because they have no doctrine, and they don't have much salvation either, but that, that's what they focus on. Uh, most Baptist churches follow that same mindset, and when you go down that road, as I've said many, many times, when it starts wrong, it usually ends wrong. The theme of the Bible is not salvation. The theme of the Bible is the second coming of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom in righteousness. Righteousness. Over 1,200 times in the Old Testament, you'll find a reference to that in one way or the other. And I said, the theme of the Bible is not God's day. It's not the day his son came down and they spit in his face. They pulled out his beard. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They put him on a cross and put nails in his hands and his feet and then a spear in his side and made fun of him and stripped him naked. That's not God's day. Now, I'll be honest with you. That's my day. That's my day. Because without that, I'd be in hell. Amen. And better you know it or not, maybe I'll get a little boy men up the front road here. Without that, you'd be in hell.. Amen. Amen. That's my day, the day that my Savior came down, took on the body of a man, the day that God left the throne of God, came down to this earth, took on the body in the fashion of man, walked on this earth, and then hung on the cross for me, and took the spit, the beatings, the nails, the spear. For me. That's my day. That's not the day God's looking for. The day God's looking for. Is the day his son comes back. On that white horse. Rides through that eastern gate. Gets off that steed. Steps on a mount of olives. And it splits. He goes in through the eastern gate. And he sits down on the throne. And he is crowned king of kings. And lord of lords. That's his day. And his throne is established in righteousness. Not the day he's looking for. You better get on the same page. Well, you can't get on the same page because you don't even have a Bible. Get a Bible, then you can get on the same page. No, don't do that. I'm enjoying the fact that God's hid those things from you. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Everything in the Bible... Everywhere you go will point toward that day. And there's two days fundamentally doctrinally in your Bible. There's the day of the Lord and then there's the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ will always be the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we got a lot of the evangelicals out there that don't believe the rapture anymore. That's okay. If you would happen to be saved, you'll get to go. Just close your eyes, take a deep breath. It'll be over in a second, and then you'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, and you will get it straightened out there. That's the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ for us. That's Christ's day. He comes for his bride. God's day, the day of the Lord, is when he comes for his wife Israel. But before he can give them everything he's promised them, he's got to get a wicked, he's got to get the wicked out of the way. You know God's got a sense of humor. We think of God as this stoic God, you know. Somebody down here laughs, and God goes. You're having fun in church, and you laugh, and you you make fun of things and have a good time, and God's going. I know he's got a sense of humor. Just look in the mirror. But I'm telling you, God's got a great sense of humor. God, you know, I'm going to tell you something about truth. Truth is hard to kick against. After you're dead and gone and your stupid teachings are dead and gone, truth will still be here. You'll come and go. Your goofy ideas will come and go. Your goofy Bible teaching will come and go. But God's standard of truth will never, never not be here. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my word will never pass away. In our hymnal, I'm not sure what page it is. I don't need to know. what the material. We got a song that we don't sing it very often, but it sang a lot, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And you know what? That's a great song. And you know that the closest you ever get a Democrat or a liberal or an unsaved person to ever sing anything uh, about God in the Bible what might be The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Battle Hymn of the Republic was written back in about 1862 by Julia Ward Howe, who was a poet and a songwriter, and it was during the Civil War. She was an abolitionist. She was against slavery. Didn't get an amen from you on that one? I bet you'd like it if she was quarterback for the Chiefs, wouldn't you, huh? You changed your mind on that yet? No. You know, you're stubborn, just like your other brothers aren't like that. Why are you like that? I love you no matter what, and I'm not, you're still going to be my son, so you just hang in there. Because I want to be around when you repent. Anything you do in Washington, one of the big galas they have, They'll have the Marine Corps band there or the Army Choir or the Navy or whatever, Air Force. They're usually so high up you can't hear them. But they're, they're, and they'll say, my eyes have seen. And there are some great renditions of it. There are some renditions of the Battle of the that give you, give you, make your hair stand on it. Some of you, it's a little harder than others. Mind mine, you can't see it when it does, but it does. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming. And that's a, it's great stuff. And I watch there, you know, the Democrats. I've watched them sing that, you know. And there's there's Obama going at it, and Trump going at it, and know, uh, Harry Schumer going at it, and uh, Al Franken going at it, and everybody going at it, both sides of the aisle. You know, they're saying his, who? Eh, and I'm thinking to myself, what a joke that is. <laughs> you know what you're saying? The battle hymn of the Republic. Oh. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is tramping out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed his fateful lightning of his terrible with sword. His truth is marching on. Glory. You know what you're saying? You're saying about the prima letter return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is better than any song in that hymnal talking about the Lord coming back. That song is talking about the Lord coming back and kicking the snot and the fire out of everybody before he establishes his throne in righteousness. There you are. You don't believe a word of it. You don't believe anything. You believe you're a kingdom builder. You're over there singing the greatest song in the world about the pre-millennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're so stupid you don't even know it. Are you kidding me? That's Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3. That's Psalm 37, 40. Psalm 50. Psalm 72. Psalm 76. Psalm 77. Psalms 83, 96, 104, 110, 114. That's Malachi 4.1. That's Revelation 19.11. On and on and on, and you're singing about it, and you don't even believe it. Are you kidding me? Every Methodist. Every Presbyterian, every Lutheran, every Episcopalian. <laughs> let's all stand up and sing the battle hymn of and the Republic. You don't believe a word of it. You do with that what you do with life in the Bible. It's empty words that mean nothing to you. But I'm telling you something, I don't care if you're unsaved, I don't care if you're a liberal, I don't care who you are, I'm going to tell you something, in this old world, you can't get away from the truth. Yeah. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but there's no songs written about what you believe. When you want to sing a song, you've got to sing one about what I believe, what the Bible teaches. Are you kidding me? That's because the theme of the Bible is the second coming of Christ. The theme of the Bible is the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and him coming back and establishing that kingdom. You got the Moron Tabernacle Choir who have just changed their name if you don't know that. They're taking the word moron out. <laughs> And now they're just the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Ronald Reagan in 1980 called them America's Choir. They have sang for every presidential previden- uh, inauguration uh, since I can remember. They were started in 1867. Every year. Every year around Christmas, they sing Handel's Messiah. They're world famous. Do you do you know what Handel's Messiah? You don't even know who who Handel was. Well, let me get you. Let me get a handle on it for you. Oh, shut up. I mean, here's a bunch of Mormons who don't believe anything about the Bible, who believe black people don't have souls, who believe out in outer space on the planet Kobar, that the fallen sons of God cohabit with women, and the fallen sons of God predate you black folks. Now, that's what they teach. Thank God for it. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? A N- couple of weeks from now, I'm going to take all you guys and send you over there. We're going to roll their feathers. That is the most despicable, ungodly. That is the most. I can't even. I can't even. I. I. I, I, I can't say what I'm saying because I'm a Christian and there's women and children in here. That is ludicrous. You want to go burn it down? I'm with you. I can't even believe that. <laughs> they don't believe anything we believe. They believe that that, that Jesus Christ was replaced with, with Joseph Smith, that he's the prophet. And that angel came down, brought those golden tablets, but not where they got the Book of Mormon. You know what? You know why you had to get a Book of Mormon from your tablets, from your angel guy? I'll tell you why. Because truth will stand always, and you couldn't deal with it, so you had to come up with something else. Amen. That's how it works. The Jehovah's Witnesses are the same way. For years, they used the King James Bible, and they were getting their rear ends kicked by the Baptists with the King James Bible, so they created a little green monster, the New World Translation. It says, what would they believe? Truth is so impacting and stands on its own two feet that if you want to get around it, you got to get your own Bible. I'm telling you, that's all these neo-evangelic crowd, all these goofy Baptists who take Baptists off their name or even keep it on that don't believe the King James Bible is the word of God. You know what, you couldn't stand the heat of the truth so you got you some piece of, instead of a sword, you got you a butter knife. It won't cut anybody, but it'll butter you up. If I'm a four-wheel drive vehicle, I am shifting from two-wheel drive to four-wheel as we speak. And He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah! 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 King of kings. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, King of kings. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, da, da, da. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ba, bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. And he, you don't believe any of that. I believe he's going to reign forever and ever. I believe he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You don't. Why, there isn't a Mormon on this planet that believes the premillennial return of Christ. I mean, hey, don't tell me God don't have the last laugh. Just imagine you being a Democrat or a liberal or whatever. Republican, for that matter. You standing up and saying, Battle Hymn in the Republic. Just imagine you being a Mormon, singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, or singing, Handel's Messiah, year after year after year, in concert after concert. And in one of these days, brother, you stand before him in your sin. You see that swift sword. You see that lightning like a judgment like lightning. You see the grapes of wrath. You see the threshing of those of those of the truth. So now you wind up standing before him. Having all your life sang and sang about his coming and you didn't believe it for 15 seconds. Don't tell me God doesn't get the last laugh. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. While you will reprobate, this next verse is just for you. Verse 6. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, nor stand in the place of great men. You know what you got there? That's the great white throne judgment. That's where the dead, small, and great stand before God. That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and it was found no place for them. Here it comes. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books. And the she gave up the dead which were true in it, and death and hell delivered the dead were in them, and they were judged every man according to the word. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There it is. The great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne. No place to hide now. No church. No Bible college no education, all that has been stripped from you now for the first time in your life, all you've got to deal with is the truth. And He says, put not forth thyself in the presence of the king nor stand in the place of great men. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Oh my goodness. And there he sits on the throne. You go through your whole life Believe it what you want to believe. You go through your whole life pretending you're okay. You even sing the songs that go against everything that you believe, but you're so inept when it comes to truth. You've shielded yourself from the truth that now you can't even get to it. So God strips away everything. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the heaven and earth fled, nowhere for you to hide. Heaven and earth are passed away. You're standing in space held up by the power of Almighty God. The same power you rejected in this life. There he sits on the throne. There he sits on the throne. There's the Ancient of Days. There's the Eyes as the Burning Fire. There's the only one who could have paid your price for hell. You rejected him. Now he stands as your judge and you have put yourself in the place of great men. I want you to see this. Look at verse 6 again. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king. If you go to hell and stand before him at that judgment, you put yourself there. It says, put not forth thyself. And yeah, lesson. tell you something. If you die and go to hell, I don't recommend it. But if you're so hell-bent for election that you're going to die and wind up in a lake of fire, know this. If you die and spend an eternity in hell, you have the one thought. I mean, you know, if, if Calvin was right, which he wasn't, but if Calvin was right and God picked some to go to heaven and some to go to hell, if you got picked to go to hell, well, you could say, well, I'm here. If I had had a chance, I would have got saved. But mean old God, he picked me, so I'm here. I'm, I'm here now, and nothing I can do about it, so I'll make the best of it. I'll get a couple of air conditioners and put it in my room or whatever I got to do. I'll just make the best of it. I mean, if you had no say in it, no choice, if God came down and said, you're going to hell, you can maintain some respectability. But if you go to hell, you're in a place that God never intended for you to be. Amen. Sorry, Calvin. You're in a place where the Bible says we're prepared for the devil and his angels. You're in a place that God, when he put that place together, never thought of you being there. It was never in your mind. He never predestined you to be there. You know why? Sorry, Calvin, because it says you put yourself there. He didn't put you there. And if you go to hell, and I hope you don't. And I hope if you're unsaved this morning and you listen to the sound of my voice, it gets through to you. But I'm telling you right now, if you do go to hell, you're going to be in a place that God never intended for you to be. Amen. And throughout eternity, you will have in your mind that every time God gave you an opportunity, every chance you have, every song you sang, every handles Messiah, every battle him Republic, and you refuse the truth. in the place of great men. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 3, talking about that day. He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by word without knowledge? Gird up now thy Lord like a man. I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You know what the great white throne is going to be? You got there because you thought your self-righteousness was going to get you to heaven. So now you're going to get to stand there and argue with God why he should let you in. And you know what? You know what he's going to do? He's going to put your self-righteousness over here and the righteousness of God's son, Jesus Christ, on this side. And you're going to have to prove you're just as good and better than he is. What a day that's going on. Are you kidding me? We talk in the world, Boy, he's really on the hot seat. You don't know hot seat till you stand in that day kings, potentates, the bums of the skid row, all coming up in their order, all standing there, and all get to do the exact same thing, justify themselves before a holy God, why your rejection of the truth was better than the truth that God gave you, why your self-righteousness will cut it when he hung his righteousness on the cross for you. I mean, you were so educated and so smart and got it all figured out. Oh, I've heard him. Well, me and the devil, when I go to hell, me and the devil will drink out of the same bottle. Ha, 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 ha. Well, you know what? I'll just, uh, the only thing I don't like about hell is I won't be able to smoke my marijuana down there because it'll burn it up before I can light the cigarette. Ha, 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 ha. Let's see how good you do face to face with him. Let's see how good you do in that day when your education won't help you. Your seminary training won't do you any good. All your hiding now has been stripped away. And you're standing before him with the smoke and the stench of hell and brimstone pouring off your body. And all you've got to cover your nakedness is your filthy rags of your own self-righteousness. While you and I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, no matter how bad it's going to be, our clothing is covered by the blood of God's Son. Amen. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel looking ahead in Daniel 9 and 10 of chapter 7 spoke of that day. He said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands, men stood unto him. And 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. And the judgment was set. And the books were opened. Presidents, kings, queens, senators, congressmen, movie stars, along with murderers, rapists, thieves, child molesters, all matched and pumped together as they stand here. And every one of them, just like today, will have their excuses why their sin is okay. The day you put yourself before the presence of the king will be the day your alibis will end. Now you'll have a chance to declare your righteousness up against God's son. Come on, tough guy. Let's see what you got. Come on, sweetheart, you're smart. Let's see how you can do in that day. And boy, does he have some questions for you, Job chapter 38. You know, in the Bible, one of the greatest studies you'll ever take is a study on the laughter of God. In the Bible, there's four times of kinds of laughter. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, you find the laughter of sinful merriment. That's what everybody was doing last night and Friday night out in the world. And then old Chris and the boys go down preaching on the street. reason why people don't like it is because, Chris, you're interrupting the laughter of their sinful merriment. They don't like that. When you start to here at work, and somebody's telling dirty jokes or this or that, and you step in and say something. They don't like it. You know why? You're interrupting their sinful merriment and their laughter. Then you have the laughter in the Bible of skepticism. That'll be found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were well up in years, 90-some, 80 years old, and well past childbearing age, and God told Sarah and Abraham, Or told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a child, which was going to be the promised seed coming down Christ's line, Isaac. And Sarah was over here listening to what was going on. And when she heard that, she laughed within herself. God comes back a little later and he says, you know what, he says, we're going to name that kid, his name is going to mean Laughter. Because you laugh. She says, oh, just like you and me. Oh, Lord. I didn't laugh. Oh, honey, I, I didn't do that. Mom, um, I didn't do that. Dad, I, I didn't do that. Where do you think that starts at? Deceptions always will start with somebody not wanting to deal with the truth. She knew who God was. She knew how important Abraham was. And now she just had a chance to be just as important to bring about the seed of Christ. And she laughed because she was skeptical of what God would do. And she says, Lord, you know I love you. Wow, that sermon Sunday was so good. That was last week, you know. That preacher's really good. Lord, I, 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 I laugh. Me laugh. I laugh. You know what he said? Yay, but you did laugh. You don't get around truth. The greatest example that is that of all these crazy politicians out there. They'll get into some terrible sin, and then because they're accountable to the people, they'll get up and tell you the goofiest stories you ever heard in your life. Nobody believes them. You know what? It's always better off if you're a politician or whoever, and you are really messed up. These guys get up there. I've watched them. I've watched them. i, I watched them. What was that guy's name that was sending naked pictures of himself, that little Weirwinkle guy that was in Chicago? A good name for him, Weirwinkle. <laughs> anyway, he went on and on and on. How I didn't do it. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. No, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I, this is my favorite. In time the truth will come out, and I will be justified. Well, we're right about half of that. In time, the truth will come out. It always does. You'd be much better off to get up there and say, hey, look, I'm human just like you. I screwed up. I did this. I'm sorry. Uh, hey, America is the most forgiving people on the planet, kind of. i say the unsaved people are, God's people aren't. And, and, you know, uh, I, I just, I messed up, I screwed up, I, I, I'm sorry, I asked her forgiveness, you know, I've learned my lesson, I, I, I did it. And everybody be okay. The longer you lie about it, the more everybody knows you're lying about it. She said, Lord, I, 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 I. me? I'm Abraham's wife. I didn't lie. God said, "Yay, yeah, but you did lie. Uh-huh. You laughed. You laughed. So that's the laugh of skepticism that in Psalms 126, verse 2, you have a laugh of victory. That's our laugh. We're overcomers. I showed you the other night three overcomings in the Bible. Israel's an overcomer, you're an overcomer, and the Bible says that Christ was an overcomer. Now, I'll tell you what, I know life's tough. I know it can be rough. I, I know there's a lot of things that go south in your life, and my life, and things don't always work out the way we want to. I get it. I realize that we're in this old world, sometimes the flesh beats us up terribly. Sometimes God's people beat us up terribly. Sometimes we just get a general beating up terrible. But I want to tell you something. When that old rapture takes place, you know, I don't know why a evangelical, evangelical wouldn't want to believe in the rapture. I'd want to believe in the rapture even if it wasn't a rapture. I want out of here. You know, the last thing you're going to hear when that rapture takes place, if you're listening, you won't be listening. say, so how do you know? You're not listening now. Half of you, half asleep. Uh, it amazes me some of you guys can sleep through some of the sermons that I preach so loud. I, I, I get convicted about it. I slow down a little bit. I don't want to wake you up. You're having such a peaceful <laughs> little time. But the last thing you're going to hear when that trumpet sounds is this guy right here giving a war whoop as I go up. And my laugh is going to be, I got the victory. Amen. Amen. Old Mel Sabaka used to tell the story. Oh, it was a great story. i preached with him, I've been with him many times when he was preaching and I'd sit down there I always loved this story. We'd go to different churches, you know, and he'd use different endings in stories. It's where I learned how to, how, to, how to do it too. And he would tell some great stories. I mean, just really leave you hanging and then nail you. And he told a story one time. He was talking about the second coming of Christ. He told a story one time. He says, you know, one time there was this little kid. And every time he went to school, there was this big bully there that would always bully him. Take his lunch money. Just beat him up for no reason. And this kid got so tired of it. He'd go to lunch. He'd take his lunch to school. And the kid would take his lunch. He'd pick him up and dump his money. out, take everything he had. And then beat him up on top of it. He'd get him going into school, and he'd wait for him out every day coming out of school. A bully be waiting there for him. One day he got out of school about five minutes early, and the bully wasn't there. And he only is about two blocks away from school. And so he starts to walk home, and he looks around about that time. The bully comes around the corner out of the school and sees him. That little kid takes off. That bully laughs and goes after him. That little guy... Just the little guy. He's running with everything he's got. And he's running down there and he looks right there and that bully is gaining on him. And boy, I'll tell you what, he, he, he's putting it to the metal, boy. He's going as fast as he can. And he sees his house up there about, about 200 yards away, and that bully, he can hear the bully right behind him. They had a little gate there, a little white gate. He just went right over that gate, and he looked behind him, and that bully just scaled that whole gate over him. He went around the back of the house and got his hands up on the back door to get in, and about that time, that bully grabbed him by the cuff of the neck and pulled him down. About that time, the back door opened. And his big brother, just home from the Marine Corps, stepped down. <laughs> that little guy said, that's my brother. You want to beat me up now? You want to take my lunch money now? You want to throw me down on the ground now? My big brother's here. He'll have some words with you. And that big old Marine came down. I will to tell you something. You can laugh at me all you want. You can make fun of me and do what you want. You wait till my big brother gets here. He's going to set it straight. You will wait that back door open, brother, and he walks down, and he takes the wicked away. Let me tell you something. There is a laughter of the victory for the child of God. And maybe your life is so messed up today as a child of God, you can't laugh. But I'm telling you, I feel sorry for you because you got in that book and did what was right. You can have the laugh of victory. But one way or the other, you'll get it when, he peeled, when our big brother pulls us out of here. Amen. So you have the laughter of Sinful merriment, you have the laughter of skepticism, the laugh of victory. And then the last one's found in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and, and, uh, Psalm, excuse me, Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and Proverbs chapter 1, verses 25 through 31. That's the laughter of your condemnation when you go to hell. Psalms 2 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers to take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cord from us. Look at verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. God shall have them in derision. He shall, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them with a sore displeasure. Proverbs 1, 25 through 31 says, But ye have said it not, God speaking, all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh desolation and your destruction cometh upon a whirlwind, then your destruction, then you shall call upon me and I will not answer. They shall seek me early and they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my proof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. And God at the great white throne judgment, when you're pleading, trying to stood out, he's going to laugh at you. Wow. Jesus lover. Uh, where'd that go? I thought for God so loved, he loved everybody. I, gee, I thought God would be there. I've heard guys preach that God will have tears in his eyes while he's casting people down. You're out of your mind. What are you smoking? You know what it's going to be? I mean, I'll just give it to you. I wasn't going to go this far, but I'm in four-wheel-high drive now at this point in time. All four wheels are digging in and holding on, so you better grab the end of your seat because here it comes. You know what you got? Here's what you got. You know, I can only think one thing that make God laugh. I mean, I can think several things, but I mean, in that day, one thing. And that is going to be some unsaved man coming up there before that great white throne, Jesus Christ over here, and him trying to justify his righteous as good as God's sons. There'll be, you saw it in Daniel 7. There's millions and millions of people, you and me, in those grandstands. Can you imagine millions and millions and millions of people and God himself sitting on the throne and Christ over there? And somebody gets up and he says, well, Lord, I should go to heaven because I never killed anybody. I lived a good moral life. I tried to help my fellow man. I didn't trust Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior because I've never really done anything wrong and I really didn't need His righteousness because I lived there. That whole universe will bust out in one hilarious core of laughter. Amen. That you are going to put your righteousness up against His Amen. and with a straight face going to stand there and say, I'm as good as Jesus Christ. I mean, they're going to be hanging over the balconies. They're going to be slapping each other in the back. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be standing there going to be gone. <laughs> That's really good, but that ain't going to work for you. And the booming laughter of God. That Bible says, I saw a great white throne and heaven and earth flee from it. You're going to be standing in Almighty's, uh, in, in, by Almighty God's power in space. And you're going to stand there and plead your cause and the very power that is holding you up. That Bible says that every tongue and every knee is going to bow. And you may not bow your knee and confess him now, but you will there. Amen. And it is a matter in your tough image whether you will or you won't, just a matter of when you will. Amen. And you'll stand there before him and after, you, after you've been laughed out of the place. And you now realize that your condemnation is coming. You're going to bow down and you're going to put your head and you're going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to stand up. God's going to take away that power. (laughs) Down you drop. And the last thing you'll hear before you splash in a lake of fire is the rip-roaring laughter of an almighty God. Laughing at your calamity. Laughing at your derision. Laughing at your cry for help. Because his son on the cross cried out for help and he turned his back on him so he wouldn't have to turn it on you. You rejected it. You gave God the short end of the stick. It's on you. You have put yourself in the place of great men. Verse 7, for better it is that... Be said unto thee, come up hither that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine now shalt see. Amen. that's a reference to somebody in the tribulation seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and believing the everlasting gospel that's being preached in Revelation four six but one hundred and forty four thousand if you know your Bible. those are the ones who revelation seven14 says, have washed their own robes. The difference between them and us, if you go to Revelation chapter 1, it says we washed, he washed our robes. They have to wash their own. And the Bible says in verse 7 that every eye shall see him. And Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says the same thing. Luke chapter 21, verse 28 says that they're, and here's what happens. The Antichrist goes against them in the middle of tribulation. He tries to wipe them out. He chases them. They run into all kinds of places in the wilderness. God sustains them. Finally, down in the Valley of Armageddon, they converge down there. And all of the Antichrist armies, all the UN forces, all the armies of this world that are with the Antichrist circle them and are going to wipe them out. Now the devil thinks he's finally got them. And he's ringed them down, and just as he puts up his hand to send a horde down to wipe and slaughter them out, that Bible says, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. Amen. You know, every movie prop, everything out there that you watch, you can't get around truth. How many times I've seen the old Western movies where the wagon trains are out there, you know, and uh, they're out there all by themselves, and then the Indians have got them surrounded, and they're going there, and so they circle the wagons. And the Indians just got them surrounded. There's just thousands of them. And boy, I'll tell you what, they are all circle the wagon. They got their rifles and they're gonna fight it out, but they know they can't. And just about the time those Indians start to come down and attack, somebody hears. Here comes the Calvary. Amen. And boy, those Jews are down there, boy, surrounded, and the Antichrist is gonna get them. Somebody lift up their head, and there we come. There comes the Calvary. And it pulls them out of that thing. That's going to be a day. That's how it works. The Prince is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, getting all this together quickly. Last week, I showed you how, and have been for the last couple of weeks, Israel rejecting God's wisdom and going into captivity, which is the type of the tribulation. I showed you how God will now hide some things. He seals up the book of Daniel, some things, and Revelation also some things for later. Then when God comes back at the second coming, to take away the wicked, verse 5, today. And he will establish his kingdom and his throne, verse 5, today. All the wicked and the unsaved men will then stand before the king, and they will be judged Revelation 20, Daniel 7. And found in verse 6, they'll stand with great men, but they put themselves there. Some people, the Jews and the Gentiles, under the preaching of the everlasting gospel, will overcome, as the Bible says. And uh, we find them here in verse 6. And uh, uh, they, uh, uh, they, they get redeemed. And God will come back and take them out right before it all comes down. And then God comes back at the second coming and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. Now, putting all the events for you and for me, here's what you got. Right now, we're at the church age, and we're at the end of the church age. Somebody asked me the other day, uh, what is the last sign before the Lord comes back? And I said, I'm not looking for a sign. I'm listening for a sound. There are no more signs. Any moment now, any day, any second, First Corinthians 15, 51, one, second first Thessalonians four thirteen. be the rapture of the church. You say, well, my evangelical preacher don't believe it. Doesn't matter. He probably ain't going. It's Okay. <laughs> then we know the tribulation shows up. The Antichrist shows up. Revelation chapter 6. We know the tribulation lasts for seven years, divided in the middle by three and a half years. And then Christ comes back. Second coming, take away the wicked. Establishes his throne in righteousness. Then he has the great white throne judgment after that thousand years. And then God's government, his kingdom the thing that man has tried to replicate and tried to fake and tried to counterfeit all through history will now firmly be established. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, now there'll be no end. And as the Mormon tabernacle choir will sing this year without believing any of it, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, Handel's Messiah was written in 1681. In music, there's five periods of music, and they all correspond with what man does with the King James Bible, in case you know it or not. The first period was the Baruch period. When Handel, as Mozart, and some of those guys composed their their music... It's been called the golden age of music. And it's called the golden age of music without anybody knowing it because it was always the, also the golden age of the Bible. And in that golden age of music, it was unlike any other time in, in history of music because in that golden era, the classical it's called, it was man writing music expressing his love for God. Based on, here it comes, a King James 1611 authorized version. It wasn't an NIV anywhere. It wasn't an AIV, ASV anywhere. They, they expressed their love for God through their music. Mendelssohn, Mozart, Handel. They did it, in their writing. They're expressing their love for God. When the next comes in, when the naturalistic period comes in, we've got Beethoven and those guys. Now they're, you find they're rejecting the Bible, and you find man now expressing his love for himself. When Handel wrote, he's writing about Revelation chapter 19 and 1,200 places in the Old Testament because everybody knew back then who was saved that there's only one way he's coming back, the pre millennial return. I'm sorry today that you don't know that. I'm sorry today that whatever you got caught up in that took the Bible from you has left you destitute. I'm sorry for that. But you know what? Doesn't change the fact that all down through history, the Bible believing line believed what I'm teaching you this morning, and Handel wrote about it in his songs. Listen, the truth of God's word will stand forever. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what your college professor thinks about it, your best friend, your husband, or your wife, or whoever you're hanging out with that you probably shouldn't be hanging out with. It will never change anything. Men saved and lost who reject the truth will have their whole life go by. It's truth and principles in every aspect of their life, and they'll never see it. They'll sit there and sing the battle hymn of the republic, talking about the premillennial turn and the judgment they're going to face, and they'll never figure it out. You know why? Because the Bible says back there in Isaiah that unsaved men don't understand God's judgment. They'll sing up there and get goose pimples. This is wonderful, great, wild, great. They'll go to that concert and have the Moron Tabernacle Choir sing it, and they'll leave there saying, that was such a great experience. And yet they're going to stand before God someday and die and go to hell simply because they can't believe. Maybe it's because they're being sang by a group that doesn't believe it either. And at the judgment seat of Christ, saved men who have rejected the truth and taught against it will have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and face the truth of a book that God gave them and they rejected. And they're saved, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, yet so as by the fire, they lose everything they have. An unsaved, unregenerated man who spent his whole life trying to get around God's truth will put himself in the presence of the king, verse 6. And at the end of his life, he will find the very truth that he rejected, now waiting for him to reject him. And the great joke of all times, we say it, he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. We talk about, I got the last laugh. No, you didn't. God's going to get the last laugh. And when he laughs, he'll laugh best. It'll be because that you and your self-righteousness thought you didn't need Christ's death on the cross. That you were good enough to get there for yourself. And I cannot think of anything that will put heaven in stitches. It's for a bunch of saved people to stand there and listen to an unsaved man or woman try to say my righteousness is better than his. And you'll come face to face with that great truth in the face of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed.